Okay, we've got um, up to this far Moses that has led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they're headed on the way to prepare for the promised land. And what we'll cover tonight, it'll be a little fewer chapters than we normally do because of the content itself. That we'll look here at the 19th chapter when Moses goes up Mount Sinai, God speaks to him. And then we'll look at the Ten Commandments that's given in the 20th chapter and also notice the 21st chapter. And in looking at this, the things that we'll especially look at on the, on the various laws is those things that are absolutely unique with the law of Moses in comparison with the law at that time. In other words, all the laws of the surrounding nations around them. When it comes to uh, looking at the Bible from a standpoint of evidence and proving it's inspired by God, it's those unique features that separated from other information at that time that really set it apart. In other words, that uh, if, if you find laws in the law of Moses that, for example, are the same that are in Hammurabi's code of law, and even though that this law may be right and you inwardly identify with it and everything, that doesn't prove that it comes from God because it might just prove the very intelligent individuals made an observation. But when you get to those characteristics that are absolutely unique to the law of Moses, and you don't find in the codes of the surrounding nations, and, and you find those concepts that are totally unique and all, then those are the characteristics that along with a lot of other things uh, that become important in the field of evidences itself. Also, that when we hit this chapter, we'll have again a little bit of the miraculous, and what we want to note is not just the miraculous that's there, but the reason for it. And the point that we've established going back to when uh, all the plagues took place on e in Egypt and the miracles that was wrought through Moses, in fact, if you think about it, uh, Moses is uh, really our first contact with the miraculous. You know, you've got the story that unfolds in the beginning, the creation in a miraculous way, but then after that you have God working through these various individuals, uh, speaking to them in visions and dreams, uh, identified in the sense that what he says comes to pass and they have their confidence in him and they know him through personal experience but you really have not found in, in Abraham or Noah or any of these other characters uh, miracles you're, you're, you've had Genesis and that's it so far as miracles go Genesis 1 and now for the first time in the human record with Moses we have the miraculous that pops into the picture itself and so we want to know not only the miraculous, but the reason for it. And I believe when we look at the context that what we find every time that the reason for the miraculous was to, to uh, identify that individual as a spokesman for God. And it was there to uh, give credentials to the message itself and to attract their attention. That was it. That if anybody benefited in any way, that was really secondary to the fact that it was credentials and to set this man aside as a spokesman for God. Okay, notice now in the 19th chapter at Mount Sinai, uh, third month, uh, the Israelites left Egypt. Uh, they go up in the desert of Sinai. Uh, verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and tells him what he is to say. And he says, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now, notice verse 4 there where it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, that 
God is still, at this point, trying to get these, these Israelites, who have come out of 400 years of slavery, to recognize that he is the true God. And keep in mind, they don't recognize this at this point, that uh, they have come out of idolatry, out of paganism, and they still do not have any full understanding. And so he wants them to identify with the fact that this is the God that brought them out of Egypt and overcame all of the gods of Egypt. In other words, none of the gods of Egypt could stand against him. And he's going to build their confidence in him. But at this point, and it will become evident later on, the Israelites really have no full understanding of God at all. He's just still one among many gods. And they identify with him in the sense that he's more powerful than the other gods. But only Moses and is really in tune to the fact that this is the one unique creator of the universe. And he's pretty, pretty unique in this situation. The others do not fully identify with this at this point. Now, uh, in verse 5, where he tells them, he says, If you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Well, as we go through here, we'll see this develop. And what God is going to do, he first has to identify himself to the Israelites. Well, then he wants to use the Israelite nation to identify the true God to them. But he, they've got to first come to know him themselves. And then they are going to be his treasured possession in the sense that they will identify to the world the true God. And he wants, and notice the only way they can do that is if they obey. Well, if they obey him, in fact, hold your place there and flip over here to Deuteronomy. where Moses gives a restating with some explanation of the law. Deuteronomy 4 and verses, um, starting with verse 5. Uh, Barbara, would you start reading there, please, and read uh, Deuteronomy 4, verses <coughs> 5 through 8. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Okay, notice also I should have had her going through verse 9. He said, be careful, watch yourselves closely so, so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and their children after them. All right, now notice that from the <coughs> latter part first, the religion of Israel was to be a taught, learned religion. That all they had to do is not study and it would slip. Uh, don't teach it to your children and it slips. But uh, God in some mystical way was not going to keep it in their mind. They were given that information, they had to teach it, and they had to study it, or they could lose it. And so they're warned there. And notice also in uh, verse uh, 5, where he tells them he's given the decrees and the laws, and that's what we're getting ready to look at over here in Exodus. And he, remember he's told them over there, he in the part we just read, how he wants to use them as a special nation, but that was contingent upon their obeying him. Well, then he makes a statement here in verse 6, Observe them carefully, and this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. And says they'll hear about these decrees, and then they'll recognize that this nation is different than the other nation, and that the God that they serve is different from the other God. What God has done is he's going to give them his law, and his law is inherently right. 
And by inherently right, I mean that it's not right just because God says so. If God gave some arbitrary statements that was right just because he said so, uh, that would not be the same as being inherently right. Inherently right means that God gives the law, and without God doing anything, you practice it, and there are certain natural benefits. You don't, and there are certain natural consequences. And so that God is going to use Israel to demonstrate that his law is right, and it's the only way it works. And he, so he says to them, if you'll obey me, not only are you going to be blessed and reap a lot of benefits, but other nations are going to look at you, and they're going to see how successful you are. And they're going to say, hey, what nation has, when, it, when, it use, when they use this word righteous, don't get hung up on righteous. All it means is right. And we have a, we have, we're made in the image of God, and we identify all the time with certain things as being right or wrong. And for example, when we say something is the right way of doing it, why do we say that? It works. That's it. The right way works. It's wrong. It, it, we say this is the right way to do something. Why? Because it works. The wrong way, it doesn't. God's laws are righteous. They're right. Why are they right? They work. And so that it, it, this is such an obvious thing that if he could take the Israelites out among all these idolatrous countries and they begin to put in practice his law, it will be obvious that it works. And let me show you a, a parallel of somewhat of that with what we have in the world today. There's a big debate on philosophy of, of economics between capitalism and pure communism. And we've been battling for ever since the Bolshevik Revolution, going back in 1917, and the Cold War is in progress now, and you've got a big difference there. But something has happened. In the communist countries, China and Russia and, and the other communist countries and others that look on us, something is, is very obvious to everybody. The capitalistic countries are more prosperous, and, and the people have a much higher lifestyle. So what is happening is that Russia and China are gradually becoming more capitalistic. They're giving more individual freedom to people. They're giving them part, pieces of land that they can uh, grow on themselves. And so they've observed, and although they still, we still have this big battle going on, they honestly have come to the conclusion that, hey, uh, this way is more prosperous than the other. And so we're going to see if time goes on and we can keep them fighting, we're going to see them becoming more and more capitalistic because the other system simply will not stand. And so what we have come to the conclusion is whatever is right or wrong will win out in the long run uh, so far as whether or not it works. Well, this is true with God's law. If it is inherently right, then if it's practiced, it will identify itself as what is right because it simply works. And so he's going to give these laws to the Israelite people and he wants them to obey because God's got something more important than just Israel on his mind. He's got the whole world on his mind. He loves those Hittites and Jebusites and Egyptians and everybody just as much as he does these people. In fact, as we're going to see it, as we get a little further here, he calls the Jews a bunch of stiff-necked, stubborn people that uh, he got so disgusted with them and, and will get so disgusted with them in a little bit that he wants to destroy them. And only the prayer by Moses will stop him. So God's concern is all mankind. And so he has picked Israel as a nation. Uh, they didn't choose him, he chose them. And that's going to be the big difference between Israel as a nation and Christianity as a people later on. But he's picked them and he wants them to keep that covenant and those commands and he wants to identify his law to the world as something that's inherently right, that it's right in and of itself and it's foolish to live in any other way. And the only way that he can do that is if Israel obeys his commands.
and they, they walk in his covenant. So there's something more important here in God's law with Israel than just uh, his relationship to them. He wants to use them to identify the true God and his righteous laws to all the countries round about. Okay, now, the promise to him that if you obey him, then uh, among all the nations they would be his treasured possession, and then as we read in Deuteronomy, that other nations would see how right this law was. Well, as we go through the Old Testament, we're going to see that a number of people from the other nations enter into a covenant relationship with God because of their identification. Uh, remember when we get to the time of the judges and you've got uh, Ruth, and who was a Moabitess, and uh, then Naomi brings her sons down, and, and Naomi, of course, is the uh, servant of the God of Israel. And notice then through Naomi how attractive that Ruth became to the God of Israel and that law, and, and wanted to go back with Naomi and that her God would be her God. Well, see, this is what God wanted to happen over and over again, that as they had contact with other peoples, that they would see a unique feature in their God and in their law, and they would want to identify. Uh, as we go, David had uh, Uriah the Hittite, a righteous man, uh, who had embraced the God of Israel. Ittai the Hittite, who had embraced the God of Israel. And if you look at those names later on, after the law of Moses, you'll find a number of people that, had him, that were not Israelites who had embraced the God of Israel. Okay, God now is... Uh, we're going to give the law to Moses. Notice something else now, beginning with verse 9. Uh, let's see, uh, Tim, read that, uh, just verse 9. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligent. Wait, wait a minute, are you in uh, chapter 19? No. Oh, okay, I have to back over here, Ron. Oh, that's right. My Bible fell when it wasn't. Okay. No, Daddy had your turn over. Yeah. 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 Exodus 19 and, and verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord that the people had said what the people had said. Okay, now, God is going to come to Moses in a very special way. And remember from the story that you know how that uh, when Moses has this kind of contact that his face will shine and he actually has to put a covering on his uh, face. And remember when he goes up to the mountain that uh, there's going to be all kinds of things to take place. There's going to be lightning and thunder and fire and everything. But notice the reason for that, though, here in verse 9. It says, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you. God wants everybody to be aware that he spoke to Moses. And why, then? They will always put their trust in you. God wanted these people to trust in Moses as a spokesman for God. Now, note this passage here, because after Moses, Joshua is going to replace him. And we're going to find God doing the same thing with Joshua, that he will work in an obvious, miraculous way through Joshua, and he'll state the reason. And the reason will be so that everybody else will recognize Joshua as a prophet. All right, beginning with Moses now, and all the prophets that follow, and all the way up through the apostles, every single time, without exception, <coughs> that God picks a person that he's going to use to reveal information to, he will always, in some way, in a miraculous way, identify that man so that they will, in turn, grab the message and respect it. And that was, remember, like Paul would write to the Corinthians and say that all the signs and wonders of an apostle were done among you. In other words, receive this message, even though I'm rebuking you because of all the signs that you've seen in me. And so the big thing here was just to cause them to recognize 
that somebody that Moses was somebody special with God. Now, to show you the impact of it, we ask our we can start out by asking ourselves the question: Moses dies. Uh, Moses is the author of these first five books, and we've already studied that. Not not the author in the sense that God dictated every word, but he he compiled it. Uh, there was some revelation. There was history he recorded and all. But he's he's in the final analysis, he becomes the author, the editor of of these five books. Now the question becomes. What was it that caused, going back 1,500 years before Christ, those Jews to take these five books and reverence them and respect them and meticulously copy them and to follow them and preach them and pursue them all the way down to the time of Jesus? In other words, that, that in order for God to get them to do that, he had to make a tremendous impact. So if you were talking with somebody that was not an unbeliever and you were reasoning from the standpoint of the miraculous, that took place around Moses. And, and you weren't there. You didn't see those miracles. But here's something that you can see as a historical fact. That it is a historical fact that we can go back to about 1,500 years before Christ and the Israelites have these five books. It's also a historical fact that from that time all the way through history, even to the present time, the Israelite people have reverenced and respected and stood in awe of these five books. And so there had to have been something from the very first. In other words, to say the least, they would have had to have been pretty grossly deceived because they were so confident that this was from God that they wouldn't waver from the standpoint, even when they disobeyed God and went astray and everything else, they still held under these five books. And the prophets could always call them back from preaching these five books. This was, this was the, the covenant in these five books for the prophets. And so it's a historical fact that we can go back that period of time before Christ the Jews have this material, they reverence it, they respect it. Uh, right here we learn that God from the first identifies Moses in a special way. We can see that ourselves in that we can historically document that they did have that kind of reverence and awe and respect for Moses and then carried that material on down to the present day. Now, we said that unique features are important. In all of antiquity, in all of antiquity, there has never been any piece of literature handled or reverenced and respected in the way the Jews did the law of Moses. Never. Uh, and when you, when we go back and see the way they were copied and transmitted, there's nothing to even compare with it. There's just, just nothing there to even compare with the accuracy of it. It's like when we uh, study the New Testament documents and show how accurate that they have been transmitted, that there's nothing in comparison at that time. Well, it's even more so with Moses. When, when you go back and you look at other histories and other literature and you look at other religions, and you look at their people, and, and you see the feeling and the respect that they have for their writings, in all of history, there is no people that are like Israel in the sense that they have a body of literature that they reverence and respect and stand back with all under king, everybody, and that they meticulously copy that. In fact, they copied it so exactly that they would even count the words on the page. And they tell you how many, how many words on each page. And whenever a scribe was copying, he had several checkpoints on that page, uh, the first, the last, the middle word, and then on the page that he just copied, he would count all the words. And if he came up with even one word, more or less, he didn't go back and look for his problem, he threw the page away. He was copied again. And so that, that, that is, no, nobody in all of history has ever handled any material. So God wanted to cause them to have that kind of reverence. Obviously, he was successful. And so the, the, you and I, from a historical standpoint, could ask any unbeliever the question, 
what do you do short of what happened here to cause those people to have that kind of reverence and that kind of respect for a body of literature? Okay, now, uh, we can. everything here is tied in with the awe and respect that he wants to create. Uh, come on down to the latter part of verse 12 in chapter 19. Uh, Whoever touches this mountain shall surely be put to death. Man, he wanted them to literally stand in awe and to really impregnate this entire experience on their mind. Okay, verse 14. Moses has gone down from the mountain uh, to the people. He consecrated them. They washed their clothes. Uh, then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. And then we continue on. Basically, all he's doing is he wants to impress on their mind that they're about to experience the most important thing in their existence. And they're going to be spotlessly clean. They're going to, be, they're going to have their mind on that and absolutely nothing else. Their mind is going to be entirely on this and absolutely nothing else as they stand before God. Okay, now verse 20. The Lord descends to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses up to the top of the mountain. Moses goes up and the Lord said to him, Okay, now he's to go down, tells him to warn the people and talk with the people. And come on into the 20th chapter, and we're going to get to the Ten Commandments that Moses gives them that will form the basis for the covenant between God, God and Israel. Uh, Tim, you want to read, uh, let's see, starting with verse uh, 1 through uh, uh, 9, and then... Uh, Christy, pick up right there. I'm dividing this, the Ten Commandments there. And uh, come on down through verse 17. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God uh, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or any other of the belongings to your neighbor. Okay, now let's go back and look at the first. Remember we said that one of the things we want to note is unique concepts. Look at verse uh, 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And then verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven and earth. That's the first, first two commandments. Okay. Those two simple concepts are absolutely unique to the Israelites. That there is absolutely no people in antiquity 
that have a concept of one God who is a spiritual God and that you do not make an idol to represent him and who says that he stands above all other gods. He's just not there. When we go back and we study the Egyptians, we study the Hittites, the Jebusites, all of these surrounding nations, when we go into China, when we come to the, go to the, to India, when we head into America with the Aztec Indians, the Maya Indians, when we look at every single solitary people on the face of the earth, as far back as we can take their history, there is only one people that has the concept that God is spirit, that he cannot be represented with an idol, and that and you're not to have any other gods before him. He's so the Israelites are going to give to the world, of course it was, it was initially there, obviously in Genesis, but I'm saying that man has come a long way down the pike now in the stream of time. He has perverted his concept of God, and now Israel pops into history. Here's a group of people now, to appreciate it even further, a group of people coming out of slavery. And we know they didn't get a whole lot of education. Uh, the, the Egyptians didn't educate their slaves any better than we educated our slaves in the, in the last century. And they're brought up in idolatry. All right, now Moses, think of his education. Uh, he was edu we read in the New Testament, he was educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. His, outside of the, the concept that, that of the information that he had and his mother had given to him and had been transmitted down, that he had, the only thing he had in Egypt was, was their education. And so this group of people, I'm saying, as we go back and look at history, they pop in with an absolutely unique concept. Now, I don't even, it, it's hard even to express how important it is because when you look at humanity, you almost never see anything unique. <clears throat> Uh, when I look at uh, philosophers like Nischke or Freud or like, let's take uh, 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 the theory of evolution when we think of, of uh, oh, what's his, Darwin but the evolution's not unique with Darwin it just keeps going back you go back before Christ and, and the theory was postulated I don't know of any concept that I could identify as being unique with Freud or Darwin, or any of these people that are Marx, Lenin, George Washington, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, you will not find a single unique concept in any of their minds. You read all their literature, and you can see that that information came to them from the sources that they had read, and they had put it together, they'd taken some away, they'd added to, they may have refined it, but the concept is there. So I'm saying in history, you just don't see uniqueness in humanity. We, we're all like we accuse the Japanese of being. We refine with what we've got. So here comes something. The, the Jews come on the scene, and Moses gives us two concepts that we can find in absolutely no historical record outside the Bible. It's just not there. And so totally unique. And yet on the other hand, before we even study it out and examine it, there's something about it that sounds right. That I mean, like Paul, remember when he reasoned with the people at Athens, that do you really think the God that made you would be like stone and bricks and things of that nature? That obviously, if we're alive, we would accept, expect him to be alive too. You wouldn't expect to be able to put him in a temple or anything of that nature. And so Paul will do a good job of showing that this very unique concept, it, truth is logical, is extremely logical. And you find yourself inwardly identifying with this thing. And so, the first two commands, totally unique to Israel. Now, when you realize also it's totally unique, it'll help you to appreciate why the Jews, uh, remember what's going to happen with the, uh, he gives the Ten Commands, but what happens when Moses comes down off that mountain 40 days later? What about those Israelites? Adam was 
Okay. Got a calf built. Going right to the holy cow. Right back to Egypt. Uh, all right, now let's follow the history of Israel. And, and think, take them in your mind from Joshua into Judges and all. Do you ever find them outside of idolatry? Always in idolatry. Uh, come all the way down to the Babylonian captivity in 586, you know, coming almost a thousand years down the pipe. The majority, I'm saying that the majority of the Jews were always in idolatry. Uh, the majority were always in idolatry. There never was a time where the majority of them understood and fully identified with the truth. Well, see, the reason for this is everybody around them was in idolatry. And uh, there was just nothing else. This was, and, and this helps us in seeing that they were constantly in idolatry. It also helps us to appreciate how unique this concept was and to appreciate it even more. Moses was telling them, we look at them and we say, why in the world can't they grab hold of this? Moses was telling them something that nobody had ever told them before and nobody else believed. And I don't care how right anything you've got is, you try to tell it in a situation where nobody around has heard it before and the fact that it's new makes it suspicious. And this is just how unique this was. Now, notice something else here in the fourth verse here. Uh, Come on down to the, uh, uh, let's see, for middle of the, uh, right in the fifth verse, middle of the verse, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation, and then uh, and of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love and keep my commandments. Well, listen, to, uh, I don't want to get off on this because we get off the subject. But this word thousand is not a literal thousand. Otherwise, you've got God saying, if you love me, I, I, I show goodness for a thousand generations and I quit it. The word thousand was used by people at this period of time to mean an indefinite period of time. In other words, for however long that they love God, just that long that they would be blessed. He is the God of a thousand hills. Well, he is the God of all hills. Uh, he keeps his covenant to a thousand generations when well, he keeps it forever. All right, now, this will become important later on when we get over to Revelation, and we read about this thousand years. And, and we identify with the fact the word thousand in all antiquity, there's no such word as million. The biggest word, we say a million years to mean forever. They use thousand to be just simply an indefinite period of time. And so when God says he's doing this, he said, if you love me, when, when he said a thousand generations, it's just simply, they, un they understood that in their vernacular as just an indefinite period of time. As long as we stick with God, he never quits. Okay, now, notice what he says right before there, that uh, if you don't, if you deviate from me, that uh, I'm a jealous God, will punish the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. Okay, now, remember also, Moses is going to teach that the Father will not bear the sin of the Son, the Son will not bear the sin of the Father, but the iniquity, the soul that sins it will die. And yet you've got this statement here that I'll visit the sins of the fathers down the third and fourth generation. All right, when it comes to guilt, it's true that every individual is responsible only for his own sin. And so if my daddy's a drunk, I haven't sinned. I'm going to have to become a drunk. And so I'm, I'm guilty. But what happens now when he says, I'll visit the sin of the third and fourth generation? Not guilty. Right. If I'm, I'm not guilty, right, if he is. But I'm saying I'm guilty only if I, if I am that way. And so when it comes to guilt, guilt is not passed on. 
But then, what about the consequences? What if your father and mother are alcoholics? Even though you're not an alcoholic and may be hated, do you suffer the consequences? Okay. And so, God's law is inherently right. And this is a principle that's going to be established here. It's inherently right. And there are consequences. And so, if Israel as a nation or as a family, if they disobey that law, that for several generations down, those consequences would be felt. Uh, look at David, righteous man, man after God's own heart. He sins, he repents, God forgives him. But what about the consequence? It was, it was visited right on down, and he has a son that rapes one of his daughters by another wife. He has a son that kills a son. And then he winds up having to take the life of one of his sons himself, or through, at least through his army, that he has to take the life of Absalom, whom he loves. And we see all that bickering and squabbling in the family. So what do we have? David sins. He repents. He's forgiven. But God's law is inherently right. It's perfect. It's perfect. And so we can see generations down, and how far we can only go, uh, I, I, we can only guess right on down. After David, we have Solomon. He falls far short of David, doesn't he? Solomon has Rehoboam, far short. And so we see the consequences. David was a very poor father. He was a good man, but remember we, as Jesus told us, that God weeped over their ignorances when it came to like marriage because of the stubbornness and the hardness of heart. God never intended anything except one man and one woman until death did he part. That was always his intention. So David breaks God's law. And he sins, and God forgives him. But God's law is inherently right. And God doesn't step in in some mysterious way and zap somebody when they break the law. That would not prove God's law is right. It just proved God's stronger than anybody. But the law is inherently right. So he tells them at the very first here that if you keep it for a thousand generations, in other words, God's law is so right that if you keep it, your children, and if they keep it, and their children, and you can just keep on reaping benefits right down the line. But on the other hand, you deviate from it, it's inherently right, and those consequences are going to be felt generations down the pipe. Right now, look at, uh, we look at countries like India and some of the other poverty-type countries, and we feel very sorry for them, and we, we should. But if we go back and look at our history, we'll see that they got into that situation through sin. And, and they've had years and, and, and generations and generations of living a lifestyle that is totally foreign to the Word of God. And they've brought all kinds of consequences in, into their life, and they're there. And the only way out is to start obeying. And we can go over and we couldn't convert somebody to Christ, and they get the remission of their sins. But man, if they have leprosy, they still got it. And whatever other problems that are there, they're still there. And it'll take several generations of people obeying God to get that thing going. So, two things he says here. First of all, we get these two unique concepts of this universal spirit God who cannot be represented by an idol absolutely unique it's not in any literature whatsoever except the Bible next there is the statement that this law is so right that there are definite consequences if you deviate there's definite blessings if you stick with it okay now in, in uh, the next uh, verse there uh, verse 7 you shall not misuse or take the name of the Lord thy God in vain the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name, or takes his name in vain. And of course, that this will be a principle 
that uh, will carry forth on down and into the new covenant also. That uh, God will stand behind the use of his name. And of course, the way that they would do it is in the way that when we use terms like uh, that we call cussing, when it says God damn someone, that's what you're really saying. You're calling, you're saying God curse this person. And that's how we come up with that phrase. It was, I'm, God, I'm calling on you to curse that person. And so that is a misuse of God's name. But this was a common function at this time. When, when Moses gives this law, it was very common for the people to call on their idols to damn or curse their enemies. And if you didn't like somebody, you called on your God to do such and such, you know. It's sort of like the... Uh, the uh, little dials that you've seen where they s stick pins in them, you know, and it's supposed to, you're supposed to do something to the person it represents. And so this was a concept that they had in their idolatrous practice. And so when he says, no, you don't use the name of God in vain, that you don't use it in any appropriate way, you don't use it in your own selfish term, we've got another unique concept, that in idolatry they did use their God's name in vain, and they called his wrath on anybody they, did, anybody they disliked, and they, they call this favor on them no matter what, and they use it in a very frivolous and vain and repetitious way. And so when God says, you don't use my name that way, and you don't use me that way, uh, you've got a unique concept when compared to all other idolaters, I shouldn't say other idolaters, but when you have other religions at this particular time. Okay, now, the seventh day, uh, the word Sabbath just simply means day of rest, okay? It was a day of rest, Remember in Genesis when uh, God created, he said there that he made the earth in six days and he set apart the, the seventh day because God rested and it was, a day of, it was a day of rest. And so they were given this. And it wasn't just them that was to work, not to work, but their animals or everything was to rest and set that day aside. Of course, this will become a big thing within the nation of Israel. And again, something that is unique with Israel. Uh, and here's another interesting thing, by the way, from studying history. Uh, all over the world today, we have a seven-day week. Now, we have a month, and we have a year, and we have a week. We all know why we have a 365 and a fourth-day year, because of that has to do with our traveling around the sun. We all know why we have a month. Uh, in fact, the word month, uh, although we don't practice it perfectly, comes from a word that, that the month comes from the word moon and that's it's literally it's derived from the word moon and has reference to the fact of the moon going around the earth in a certain period of time there is no reason for having a seven-day week in other words you cannot look at anything in the stars or the sun or the moon or on this earth and say that a week should be uh, seven days any more than you should have two 15-day weeks or three 10-day weeks or however you make five, six-day weeks. But it's interesting that all over the world we have seven-day weeks. That's just always, I remember when I read that years back, it has always fascinated me that all over the entire world, Russia's an atheist country, seven-day weeks. Seven-day weeks in China, seven-day weeks in Africa. You cannot go any place in the world that doesn't have a seven-day week, and there's absolutely no mathematical, logical reason for it. It's just there. This is evidence that, again, going all the way back to Genesis and the very beginning, when a truth was impregnated on people's minds, and as they spread throughout the world, they took that truth. 
And I don't care whether you go to South America and the Aztec Indians or wherever you go, the, uh, I shouldn't say the Maya Indians, they are Aztec up, up further in Mexico, but wherever you go, you've got the concept of a seven-day week. And there's no explanation for it, except what you have right here. It is unique to the God of, to the God of Israel. All right, anybody, uh, these four that apply there to God, anybody with any comments or observations you'd like to make on anything we've covered here? Okay, then we've got four things about the relationship to God that are unique. In other words, that uh, uh, if I went to uh, any other religion at this time in history, I would not find any of those four commands. They're just not there. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what is there. So it is absolutely, totally unique uh, to Israel. Now, the next six commands deal with man's relationship to man and not a one of them is unique not a one and there's going to be inner identification here remember uh, hold your place here and flip over to Romans what do you mean by not a one based on unique I mean that Moses didn't originate the, the, the law itself. I'm saying the next six, see the next six commands oh, okay. that I can find them in, the, in Hammy Robbie's Code of Law. Okay. I can find them in the other, uh, in, in fact, wherever I find my, man, I find respect for these other six laws. Look over here in Romans 2 and beginning with verse uh, 14, I believe it is. Uh, Mark, would you read verse... Uh, 14 through 16, please, of Romans 2. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now, now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Okay, now look at this. He said that uh, that uh, Gentiles who do not have the law, in other words, he'd revealed the law to the Jew, do by nature the things required of the law, the law to themselves. And they so he said they show the requirements of the law that are written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. In other words, wherever we find mankind on the earth, and we go all the way back, uh, the Hammurabi Code of Law, for example, is goes back several hundred years before Moses. Thou shalt not kill. It's there. What about in Russia today? You know, they've got a law against, against killing. Uh, what about stealing? What about lying? What about any of them here? They're, they're, they're all through antiquity. Now, when it comes to some things, there will be different degrees of tolerance, okay? And you're going to find a purity here and a sublimeness uh, that will surpass anything else. But they'll all have respect for it. In other words, in Russia, on the one hand, it's against the law to kill, but yet they don't have the same degree of respect that we do in our country for human life. But still, it's against the law to kill in Russia. Uh, they would lie maybe quicker than we would accept, or at least we think they do. I don't know whether they outlier out politicians or not. But anyway, they, we, we accuse them of that. But they have laws against lying. If you're in a Russian court being tried, 
and uh, you commit perjury, they prosecute you even quicker than they will in the United States. But the Chinese are adamant when it comes to truthfulness, and the Japanese, all through their history. Uh, so we look at these things, and what we find here, man is made, remember we said that God's law is inherently right. Well, if it's inherently right, and it works, then we would expect man, through his experience with life, to, to have a, a, a sameness towards the things he recognizes as right and wrong. And thereby, when God did give his law, there would be inner identification with this. And so when he gives these commands, everybody that's ever read this has had inner identification with it. And you can actually show that, that uh, these next points that are given, for example, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is the first command of the promise, is reference to the first command here, uh, telling their, the children to honor their father and mother. So that you notice the reason now, so that you may live long. Well, is it a general truth that uh, we know that parents learn a lot of things through experience that children don't know. So as a general rule, children who obey their parents are going to be healthier and live longer than children who don't. It's that, it's that simple. We, we can see that in, in every single solitary generation, that no, no matter how, what the shortcoming of the parents, through years of experience, they know more than children. I don't care if the child has a higher IQ. His parents had more experience, they know more. And so, as a rule of thumb, you can say that if they listen to their parents, they're probably going to be better off and live longer. And that's what Paul calls on in, in Ephesians to the young people. He says, listen, you're going to live longer. Uh, and so, a principle of truth there that's been recognized. In fact, think of other societies like the Chinese. They respect this a whole lot more than we do. A whole lot more. Okay, let's look at the uh, uh, societies that respect this, like the, the Chinese. Do any of you uh, have listened to Paul Harvey in the past? You know who I'm? Paul, the five-minute newscast on radio a lot. Uh, I forget how many years back this was, but uh, some year back I heard him, and then uh, I had seen it written by him and in several other sources since then. But he pointed out that in our society, that people of Chinese ancestry had the best criminal record of any people in the United States. In other words. They were arrested fewer times, given fewer tickets, uh, were much more last, uh, much more less apt to commit any kind of crime that you could think of. And he pointed out the close relationship uh, with the child and the family, and the fact that in the the Chinese family, the young people are taught that they bring shame on the family by doing wrong things. And in our country today, we're unique, by the way, in the world in the way we regard we elevate young people and put older people down. Uh, when you go into all the Oriental countries, they elevate the aged, and the younger are taught to respect and listen to the aged. Well, the end result is they have a better crime rate than we do, and they don't have near the problems, and their, their, their children are better disciplined, they're better in school, they don't have near the crime rate that we do. Now, leave China and go to some of the countries that are being influenced by Western morals, like South Korea and some others, and you begin to see the young people that are like the young people in this country. They're very rebellious. Very rebellious. Their crime rate is up, and of course you know what's going on in South Korea right now. And it's the young people that are they're doing a lot of the things. In fact, they're the ones that's leading the way in that area. And so, when you get away from that concept of children being taught to respect their parents and to listen to them and to value them, you always go up with a higher. You can show it in any country you want to look at. 
And to the degree that they practice that, you're going to have less crime rate, you're going to have a better situation for the young people overall. And so this promise here was simply, notice the, the law is inherently right. And so as a general rule, you state that. Listen to your father and mother, and of course, we know that there's exceptions. You can have a father or mother that's a drunk, etc. But as a general rule, this is the case, and this is what Paul calls on. Okay, verse 13 says, uh, Thou shalt not kill. Uh, this translation says, You shall not murder. Murder would actually be more accurate. Uh, they were not condemned for killing. And we're going to, in fact, uh, uh, it's murder that's condemned. <laughs> Look over here in uh, verse 12 of chapter 21. Okay, uh, Nancy, would you read that, please? Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. Okay. Yeah, go ahead in okay. that 13th verse. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is, he is to flee to a place I will designate. Okay, and I should have said through 14. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. Okay, now notice there, the command was, Thou shalt not kill, and I said, the, the newer translation said, Thou shalt not murder, and murder is really the more accurate. It says, uh, Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall be put to death. So obviously you can, it's not killing that's condemned because a murderer is to be killed. I mean, that was the law. Uh, and you hear uh, liberal politicians today when they condemn our death penalty and, and say that it's, uh, it's ungodly and it's unchristian and things of that nature. And they'll quote the command, thou shalt not kill and everything. But the same God who said thou shalt not kill also said that the man that did kill was to be put to death. Okay, now, but look at verse 13. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he's to flee to a place I will designate. Of course, the Jews had the six cities of refuge. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. So if you take somebody's life unintentionally, you're not treated as a murderer, and your life is not taken. And the Jew could flee to a city of refuge, and his case would be heard by the judge, and he would go free if he, if he did not do it intentionally. We do the same thing in our society, that uh, when somebody takes a life, the first thing we want to know is, was it intentionally? And if it was not intentionally, uh, even though the person is still dead, we do not treat that person as a murderer. And we have different degrees dependent on levels of accountability. And the same, we, our, our, our law was based on the same, this, this very principle right here. But on the other hand, the man that actually killed and murdered was to have his life taken. So they were told that they would not murder. Now, can you? what would happen if you had a society that tried to operate without that law? There was no law against murder. You couldn't function. You just couldn't function in, in that society. Uh, what happens if you have a society where children are not taught to respect their parents and to listen to them? Well, we're finding out in our society. Uh, we, we, uh, we came on the scene with... Uh, some years back with Spock, who began to, uh, Dr. Spock began to tell parents to, you know, you hold back on your discipline, uh, just channel your child in a more positive direction, don't tell him no, don't hit him or anything like that because that's negative, and we reaped a lot of consequences now. And so we're seeing, I'm saying that the law is inherently right and a society will not function uh, as it should and can without respect for those principles. Okay, now, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. All right, now, adultery for the Jew 
was a man or woman having relations with somebody else's mate. Okay, that was adultery. A man or woman having relations with somebody else's mate. For example, we'll, we'll get to this as we go a few chapters down the pike. If two people who are not married have relations, that was not adultery. If they were caught in the act, the command was that they were to marry. Okay? Saying we're not, I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that, that, uh, that adultery was a man having relations with another man's wife or a woman having relations with a married man. If two people were caught having relations, and we'll get to that, they were not married, the command was now, if they didn't marry, then it was condemned and treated as the other. But the command was that they were to, they were to marry. And this was the adultery that, that he deals with, and this is the way they understood it under the law itself. Okay, you shall not steal. Uh, what about that? Can you imagine living in a society where it's not wrong to steal? You shall not give false testimony. Can you imagine living in a society where it's not wrong to lie? Uh, could you even have a contract? A contract of any kind? Because if, if that's not a principle that you all believe in, then a contract is, is worthless. Uh, verse 17, uh, you shall not covet uh, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet his wife. His manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, we might say car, TV set, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, the word covet means to desire something so strongly that given the opportunity, you would take it, okay? So uh, a person can be guilty, in, in the eyes of God, this individual that hasn't stolen anything can be just as guilty. But keep in mind before that you, in other words, you might see something and you desire it. Maybe there's a thousand dollars. You say, I'd like that thousand dollars. But that's not, that's, not, that's not necessarily coveting. If you look at that thousand dollars and you begin to look around and you say, if I had the opportunity, I'd take it. That's coveting. Okay? If I've got something you look at and you say, I'd like to have that or, or something, or I desire that. But... Given the opportunity, you'd say, well, even though I desire that, that belongs to Paul, I won't take it. Okay, and the same thing. If a man or a woman sees another person's mate and there's any kind of an attraction, that's not necessarily coveting. If the attraction is such that that person says in their mind, given the opportunity, I would have relations with that person, that is coveting. Okay, and so any time, that, that's why that you can be tempted and still not sin. And so when the temptation is such that it reaches a point in your mind where you say, although I'm not doing this, it's only because I don't have the opportunity. Given the opportunity, I would do it. That's coveting. Okay? Again, we can see the logic of that. If, if, uh, as long as, is, if people believe it's okay to covet, then all you have to have is the opportunity. And there's going to be all kinds of adultery, stealing, murder, and everything. All it takes is a lot of people that don't murder simply because they don't have the opportunity where they think they can get by with it. And, and this fellow, that the only reason that I don't kill Jack is because I think I'll be thrown in jail and I don't want to. Well, in the eyes of God, I'm still a murderer. And, and if I want something so bad, I would take it given the opportunity. In the eyes of God, I would be guilty. And so it gets right at the root of, of sin itself. Now, what Paul says over here in Romans is that these things are so inherently right that even the Gentile who did not have God's law, Paul said there's no excuse for him not respecting that. Remember what the way he sums up Romans, he said that there's no excuse for the Jew, he had the law, 
But then he said, there's no excuse for the Gentiles. And people have often said, well, is God treating the Gentile unfair who didn't have the law? And Moses said, and, and Paul said, yes, he did treat him fair. Because although God gave the Jew the law, it was inherently right. Man is intelligent. He's made in the image of God. And there's no way he could live his life and not come to recognize his principles as right. And so much so that you have a conscience and your conscience will condemn you any time you do that which you perceive is wrong. And so according to the Apostle Paul, nobody ever murdered and didn't stand condemned by his own conscience. Nobody ever stole and didn't stand condemned by his own conscience. Nobody ever committed adultery and didn't stand condemned by his own conscience. And you go right down, according to Paul, nobody ever did any of those things and stand condemned. And so God would call them accountable based on their own conscience. Of course, what Paul's doing in Romans is showing everybody's need for salvation in Christ. But he also is saying that the Gentiles haven't been treated unfairly. They know this. Now, look at your Ten Commands now. We said four is absolutely unique to Israel, right? Six are inherently right so that Jew and Gentile. Well, then we ask ourselves the question, the Jew has the Ten Commands. The Gentile can figure out six of them. And he's going to be held accountable by his own conscience on that. But then what about the true nature of God? Well, Paul deals with that too. In speaking of a creator, Paul would say in Romans 1.20 that man is without excuse and not believing in God because the invisible God is declared by what is it. What is. In other words, like David said, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and affirming his handiwork. Or I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Paul is saying that we're smart. We know something doesn't come from nothing. Uh, the creation declares a creator. So the Gentile was held accountable for believing in a creator. But what about the first four here, the, the first four commands about understanding that this creator now is a spirit, that he's not to be represented by an idol, and that his name is not to be used in vain, the concept of the Sabbath day? All right, Paul, remember when he preaches at Athens in chapter 17 of Acts, says in times of ignorance, God weeped over this. But now he's commanded all men. In other words, that the Gentile was held accountable for those things he could figure out in his own mind. And that was the moral principles plus a supreme being. The, there, without revelation, he could not know the true nature of God. And so in those times of ignorance for the Gentile, God leaped over their ignorance, okay? He was, he was wrong, but he was not willfully wrong. And so the, in the final analysis, as we have the Ten Commands given to the Jew, in the eyes of God, Jew and Gentile stand on the same footing. Remember what Jesus said in uh, Luke 12, that uh, those who had been given much, much would be required, and, uh, and, and deals with the, or the parable of the talents, same principle. So the Gentile has a principle that he can figure out, and he's going to be held accountable for that. And, he, and, he's, and he's, he's held accountable for his conscience. He can figure out there's a supreme being. He's going to be held accountable for that. But the true nature of that, until this message goes out into all the world, beginning with the New Testament, God would wink over their ignorance in that area. But then once it goes out, he would stop winking over their ignorance in that area. But now the Jew was on a different footing. And so as we go through history now, from this point on, through the history of the Old Testament, we'll find that as we, remember God's going to deal with Babylon, he's going to deal with uh, uh, all of Syria, and uh, all of the, I'm trying, Nineveh, and all these wicked cities, 
But notice when God deals with them, he deals with them only from the standpoint of morality. Like, for example, when Jonah goes into Nineveh and preaches, even though they don't understand the true God and they have a concept of many gods, there could be some repentance take place and God would spare Nineveh. But what about the Jews? He deals with them, not just from morality, but also with idolatry. And so when the Jews go into idolatry, they're punished. And God would use the other nations, like he'll take Babylon, and we wonder how could he take Babylon and punish Israel? Well, Babylon may be in, a, in idolatry, but God was linking over their ignorance in that. They had no knowledge of the true God. They just knew of it. And by the way, they did believe in a supreme being. And so he used Babylon and punished Israel. Israel was in idolatry. There was no excuse for them. And so all through here, we're going to see God giving information, holding people accountable based on their knowledge and understanding of this information. And so these ten commands that comprise the covenant, six of them God holds everybody in the world accountable for. Their principles, they're inherently right. The other four are unique to Israel. And, and we can look back and appreciate the fact that where did Moses get this information? We didn't get it from God. It just wasn't around. And then we can also see that, well, what about the Gentile back then? God was weakened over his ignorance of the true God. He was holding him accountable for those things that he could understand with his, own, with his own conscience and his own mind. And thus we complete here the Ten Commands that would comprise the covenant with Israel. Now, when you read later on about Israel to write God's law on the doorpost and the little post and, and talk about it when they sat down and walk about it and talk about it when they was awake and everything, what they're talking about is the Ten Commands. And I would guess that uh, when, when Israel was going faithful, you'd have had a hard time finding a mature Jew that couldn't just quote the Ten Commands like that. Their children were taught it. They memorized it. If they knew anything at all, they knew these Ten Commands. Okay, And they could quote it and, and they could give it. Anybody with any uh, comments or observations? Anything at all? Okay, what I'll do then, I knew we wouldn't get very far tonight because of that. Let's go ahead and pause then for tonight. And next time, let's see, we'll go on through and uh, we'll cover a lot more territory. Let me get into all the, let's see, be a good place. Okay, let's, uh, I tell you what, Mark, let's try to go ahead and finish Exodus, and that'll keep us on course then, as far as finishing the Bible, because we've hit the covenant. This is the, the big thing right there. And so everybody read that, and we'll finish Exodus. And so what we'll do, I'll cover that material in an overall view, but then any particular individual verse that you want to discuss further or anything like that, then go ahead and mark that, and we'll spend time on that. And then we'll, we'll finish Exodus next time. Enjoyed having you all. We normally cover a little more, but I know that I was a little slow today when we hit on that.